started thinking like, what if instead of the book on college students in the United States, what if we, we started with who are not yet college students in the United States, oh. right? And then ask, why is that? Like, what, what have we constructed that keeps that out? Or like, if we started from indigenous epistemologies, take them seriously, what if we framed policy and curriculum through them instead of those things? So like, who are not? And then why is why have we created a system that makes that so? Yeah. Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I'm your host, Rochelle Pope. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope you'll find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to the profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays and find us at studentaffairsnow.com on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Today's episode is sponsored by EverFi. How will your institution rise to reach today's socially conscious generation? These students rate commitments to safety, well-being, and inclusion as important as academics and extracurriculars. It's time to reimagine the work of student affairs as an investment, not an expense. For over 20 years, EverFi has been the trusted partner for 1,500 colleges and universities. With nine efficacy studies behind our courses, you will have confidence that you are using the standard of care for student safety and well-being with the results to prove it. Transform the future of your institution and the community you serve. Learn more at everfi.com slash student affairs. is proud to be a sponsor for the Student Affairs Now podcast. Browse their student affairs, diversity, and professional development titles at styluspub.com. Use promo code SANOW for 30% off all books, plus free shipping. You can also find Silas on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Rochelle Pope. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm broadcasting from Williamsville, New York, near the campus of the University of Buffalo, where I serve as the Associate Dean of Faculty and Student Affairs and the Unit Diversity Officer for the Graduate School of Education. I'm also an associate professor in the Higher Education and Student Affairs Program. UB is situated on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Haudenosaunee people. Today, I am thrilled to have Chris Wren and Robert Reason as my guests today. Both Chris and Bob are consummate scholars and longtime student affairs leaders and mentors. Chris, Bob, thank you for joining me today for this episode of Student Affairs Live, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, can you begin by telling us a bit about you, your current role on campus, a bit about your professional pathways, maybe a brief version of your student affairs origin stories and the work you currently do? Sure, I'll go ahead and get started. Uh, my name is Kristen Wren. My pronouns are she and her. I usually go by Chris. Welcome to call me that. I join you today from the lands of the Anishinaabe Three Fires Confederacy of the Potawatomi, Ojibwe, and Ottawa peoples. So I began my career in student affairs like so many people I know after having a great undergraduate experience 
um, at Mount Holyoke College in my case, which is a small, uh, formal, uh, historically women's college, now a gender diverse women's college in Western Massachusetts, which is sort of my, my home place of New England. Um, I left that and became a professional in student activities, student affairs at Brown University doing sort of generalist work. Um, decided I wanted to be the vice president of student affairs at a small liberal arts college, preferably my alma mater. Um, and I would need a PhD to do that. So in the course of getting my PhD at Boston College, I realized there was this other world of doing research and teaching and being a faculty person in higher education. And so I thought, ah, I should give that a try. If it doesn't work out, I can always go back and be an administrator, which seemed to be something I loved being at the time. Um, but um, in around the year 2000, I sort of took this track over towards um, faculty life. And it's been really a joy. I love doing it. Um, in 2013, my then provost at Michigan State University, where I've been a professor, um, asked me to return partly to administration um, and in a role supporting student success for undergraduate students at Michigan State University. Uh, Michigan State University um, is much larger and very different from the undergraduate institution I attended. Uh, my common joke is that um, my entire graduating class is smaller than the Michigan State University marching band. Um, so uh, doing student success at scale was a really exciting challenge for me. And I, I did that 75% um, time for a while. And then now for the past few years, I've been doing that 25% back in my department as a faculty member. So really working at that connection of administration, student success, student uh, development research and teaching. So it's a really very satisfying kind of place. So that's kind of what brings me to thinking about college students in the United States and my work with Bob. Thanks, Chris. What about you, Bob? Why don't you introduce yourself? Thank you, I will. Chris, I, I, I knew your background, but I didn't realize how much we, we really do overlap in our experiences and our, our uh, so share a little bit about me. My name is Bob Reason. Uh, he, him are my pronouns. And I'm at Iowa State University, which is located on the ancestral lands and territory of the Iowa Nation. The United States obtained the land from the Meskwaki and Sauk Nations in the Treaty of 1842. And I recognize my obligations to the land and to the people who took care of it as well as the 17,000 native people who live in Iowa today. Um, again, um, Iowa State, I've been here since 2011 this time. I, I do have my doctoral degree from Iowa State uh, as well from back in ugh, 2001. Um, but like Chris, I went to a small private liberal arts college, got involved uh, with um, student activities primarily. I was kind of a student government person at the time and um, a little bit of res life and then went to Mankato State University for my master's degree and spent most of my professional career um, as a res lifer. And I, I tell people if my family would let me, I'd still live in today. I loved res life. I think, um, I think it is some of the best and most important work I've ever done. Um, but also along the way, I worked at small private colleges, <clears throat> excuse me, as well. So I always had a, an auxiliary assignment. So I did some career services for a while. Uh, I did some academic advising for a while. I did judicial affairs for a while. Um, advised the um, community service and volunteer center at Coe College while I was living in as well. Um, so I worked primarily at, and, and went to, to small private liberal arts colleges and then uh, went to the University of Northern Iowa as res life. And the joke I make there is my entire uh, undergraduate campus could have fit into one of the two towers that I was working in at the time. Um, and so it was quite a change. And certainly now here at Iowa State and before this at Penn State as a faculty member, um, certainly a, a very different experience uh, for me. So, yeah. yeah. Excited to be here. Thank you very much. 
I'm so glad you're here. It is very interesting how these origin stories, we each have a piece of each other. I never went to a small liberal arts college, but certainly the experiences of working in a variety of different areas in student affairs and not really knowing that it existed. But once I did, I was hooked for life, hooked for life. So um, I worked in residence halls a lot like you, Bob, but I can tell you, I wouldn't live in again. But my goodness, I learned so much and loved it the entire time I was doing it. Um, and I believe it's probably the best place to begin your, um, your student affairs career because one, you meet so many different kinds of students. Two, you ha have um, professional opportunities in so many different areas. You do conduct, you do programming, you do advising, you do personal advising, I mean, you do academic things. It's, it's amazing. And for me, like Chris, I, I started off thinking someday I'd be a vice president at a small yeah. private liberal arts college. So the idea of being a generalist uh, yeah. made tons of sense uh, professionally. And so you you are a generalist when you're living in a residence hall and you're you're dealing with plumbing issues and student crises <laughs> all in the same hour, right? Exactly, all in the same hour. So I want to just switch gears here because I'm so excited to talk to you <laughs> both about college students. But before we even get to what you know, what we've learned. Talk to me about how you two came together to write this book on college students in the U.S. We were talking about this a few minutes ago before we started the recording, and I'm a little fuzzy on the exact who started it, who asked who on the first date in this case, um, but it goes something like this. Um, John Shu. Um, a mentor and colleague of both of ours was um, sort of looking around the field to see what books needed to be written that were not kind of out there in the field. And he said something like, you know, there's not like a really great textbook for the courses that are sometimes called the American college student. Um, and maybe Bob remembers better than I do, but I can't remember if John came to me and suggested Bob or I thought of Bob or maybe John came to Bob and he thought of me, but somehow we found ourselves at an ACPA conference, um, sitting at a table, talking through this wild idea, like, would this be the project that finally brought me and Bob to do something together? Um, that's my recollection. Bob, can you fill in pieces? It is, it is the, my recollection, my recollection is the same. What we, I can't remember as if we were in Philadelphia or Boston at ACPA and what year it was, but I, yeah, I remember sitting in that, that Marriott having that conversation about, are we really going to do this? Um, and then that same conversation just a couple of years ago, are we really going to do it again? <laughs> that is what happens with the second edition of yes. really again. I have to tell you, we are so glad those of us in the profession, those of us who teach that course, those of us who want to know more about students are so glad that you did make this a reality for us. So let's begin with that most obvious question. I think you two are um, the exact right people to ask. What do we know about college students in the U.S.? Who are they? What are their characteristics and experience? And how are they similar and different from previous generations? So let me let me start because as we were sharing, Chris and I wrote the book in chunks, and I and I love the demography. I love the the who's coming to college and how they're getting there, uh, and how they're transitioning in part of so the first part of the book. Um, but like Chris was saying, we, uh, we started the conversation at the ACPA conference, and I think John 
Chu actually said, would you write a book for the American College Student Course? And we, we agreed, but then the first thing we did, and we write about this in, in the preface to both, is say, we're not going to call it that. Um, and I think in, in response to your question, we decided not to call it that because there is not an American College Student. And in some ways, there probably never has been, although there has been a, a prototype of a, a way we think about American college students. So we ended up with college students in the United States, which allowed us um, to, even in the first book, but even more so in this, in this second edition, talk about the diversity um, and of both people who are coming, of the experiences they're bringing with them, and the experiences that they're having uh, in colleges and universities. And honestly, we, we get into the diversity of colleges and universities and mm-hmm. the importance of two-year colleges, uh, the kinds of four-year colleges, public, private, the vast range of experiences. And that, uh, I say, is the biggest, um, the most important message from the book is that there is not an American college student. There are, there are students in the United States who are, who are experiencing college mm-hmm. uh, right now. Uh, and that's, that's who we're working with. The other thing, the other quotation I really like, sorry, um, is we started the, the first book with a quotation by DeBard that said, um, you know, the current generation was the most racially and ethnically diverse in the nation's history. And we kept that in the second edition, but replaced it with, with a quotation by Fry and Parker from 2018 that said, the current generation of college students is on track to be the most diverse and best educated generation yet. Mm. And so in some ways, they're very similar, the two populations we've talked about, the two generations we've talked about, but in lots of ways, they become more and more diverse as, as, as the, the years go on. You know, I think if any of my former students are watching, I think they're going to say, see, that's the one question she ever asked us at the beginning of the American College Student. I I would say there is no the American College Student. And if you learn nothing else in this class, that's the thing to learn. And so to hear that that was the key driver for yours. But tell us a little about about those demographics. How diverse are they? Who are they? So we know um, we... uh, maybe one of those times you have to do some editing. Um, So we know that the vast majority of college students are in uh, four-year institutions um, and do come in kind of from, uh, right right out of high school into into undergraduate institutions. Um, And in some ways, in that sense, they are very traditional. But in other ways, especially when we look at race and ethnicity, look at international status, uh, we look at the way they enroll in college, and we spend an entire first part of the book talking about um, those demographic characteristics, uh, as well as the uh, the non um, perhaps non visible mm-hmm. identity characteristics and identity identity statuses students bring with us, and that's the part that uh, for me is really interesting. And we look at um, socioeconomic status and first generation status, where we might work, engage with students who. Uh, we may not know that right when we talk with them and right when we get to know them. Mental health issues, and particularly, and we're coming off of the pandemic, hopefully out of the pandemic, and back to a, a pre-pandemic kind of experience uh, in the fall, um, we are going to be working with students who have are bringing with them mental health issues and concerns that we've not seen before. And that, I think that's important to recognize as well. So that is the, the range of students who are coming. We're talking about... Um, you know, 16 to 18 million students um, in higher education right now. Um, 
heading towards a cliff where that's going to fall down in, in 2025, which we can talk a little bit more about. Um, but that is a, ver a vast array of, of students who are uh, in our higher education institutions. Yeah. Chris, what would you I, add to that? I'd say one of the things that when I talk with my family about this book, and my mom is delighted always to to get an announcement of a new book, send me the copy, right? Um, so one of the things that's surprising to my family, and my family itself has a range of patterns um, of my siblings, two of us finished college, two didn't. Um, so we, and I, I've got sort of the next generation below that, some who did and some who didn't. So it's kind of a mix in our family itself. Um, and what I, the, the surprising thing when I talk to a family is um, that not that many students, I think it's, um, and Bob may know the numbers head, but it's you know, somewhere up 30 to 40% of students are the ones who start at one place, go through, accumulate all their credits at the same place, and then complete at the same place, right? Most students are doing the um, dipping and swirling and picking up some classes here and there. And when I talk with my family and my uh, nieces and nephews who are uh, in their 20s, um, they and their friends, or I got sort of another set, like, they're actually living that experience as well, right? Like they take a semester at the community college because maybe their grades weren't so good or they couldn't afford it. Or, you know, the niece who worked 40 hours a week waitressing so that she could get through in four years with no debt was her commitment to herself, right? So thinking about these kinds of experiences that are not what I think most people think of as that happy-go-lucky off to college, you know, maybe you work 10 hours a week at a work-study job on campus. Um, that was my experience. I was, a, I, was a, I recently told a friend, um, who said something about, um, you know, uh, so something about Pell. And I was like, well, you know, I was Pell before it was called Pell. And they were like, that's serious cred. I was like, well, it was called the Basic Educational Opportunity Grant. And my family had an expected family contribution that was quite low. And I got a, a BEOG and now we call them Pell Grants. Um, so I think that people, but even then when in, in the 80s, when I was in school, you could do that and still work 10 hours a week. Yeah. The same economic uh, kind of, profile of a student now they can't work just 10 hours a week they are working 40 hours a week you know as waitresses or other kind of uh, kind of work so thinking about that experience the dipping the swirling the stopping and starting whether it's economic or academic um, that I think aside from the pandemic interruptions I think is much more common and that's the surprising fact of people they're like really most people don't just kind of like start and finish at Michigan State or Iowa State or Mount Holyoke. I'm like, well, actually, no, people are in and out and that's okay. And um, what we need to do in the higher ed side is figure out how to do that and not assume that my student's gonna start as a first year student, live on campus as we require, get involved in student government, make their way through. You know, Maybe I need to create some on-ramps and off-ramps, right? So that you can reconnect to uh, service learning, experiential ed, leadership opportunities as you come and go from my institution. When you take that semester off to um, skill up in something at the community college, um, how do I make sure you've got an easy track back? How am I working academic advising on both sides of that to make sure you get what you need? So I think that's something really different about who college students are today that hasn't been as much, I think in the higher ed side of thinking, like we just sort of think, well, we're at our institution and whoever comes in the door, we'll deal with them when they get here, but not thinking about the porousness of our boundary for students. So reinforce. Uh, re I'm sorry, Bob. Sorry, I just can reinforce what Chris said. I actually was just reading a, a chapter today by Jungman Lee, who's a younger faculty member, um, who had done a study in looking at students, and particularly students at four-year public institutions, so the prototype of, of American higher education institutions. Um, and she found in, in a survey response that a, 
about a third each said that they had either stopped out, transferred, um, or were duly enrolled in, in two institutions or more at once. Um, like obviously, there's overlap there. So, But our students are not having that traditional linear experience um, that we used to think of as the traditional college, which actually was my experience as well as a, at, a, at a small private liberal arts college. But that's not the experience of most of our students anymore. Right. You said about a third in this. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. A third each. I'm sorry? A third each. A third had stopped out. About a third had, had dropped out. I'm sorry, had transferred. And about a third were duly enrolled. I find that fascinating because yeah. we know that. We have that data. We've had it for a while. And it's as if the institutions that we work at, that we teach at, that we consult at, don't know it. And yet we have the data on our own campuses that this is happening. And so we haven't adjusted our services. We haven't adjusted our um, talk to our faculty about who these students are and how that's different. We haven't talked to advisors about how that's different. And we somehow still operate with a deficit model of the student who does this as opposed to it's just different. So it makes me think these are some of the ways in which we're falling short. And I wonder... um, what should we be doing? How could we respond? I know that you got to a bit of this, Chris. Maybe you can pick it up again a little. But how could we respond differently to this 90% of our students that are doing it differently? So I think some of it is to understand our own institutions and to use resources we have to figure out, okay, it's, it's not that hard to figure out, okay, who's transferring to us? Got mm-hmm. it. That should be relatively easy to figure out learning more about where our students go when they leave us because they may be coming back, right? And making relationships there. So if I know that, um, so at Michigan State, many large public universities with nursing programs, we over-admit students who want to be in the nursing program. There comes some point in their academic career when we make a cut and um, some get to stay and be nurses in our school and some have to make a choice. Am I going to stay at my university um, or am I going to transfer out to be a nurse where a program I can get into? Um, and I'm not picking on nursing specifically, but it is one of these selective admissions and pretty commonly so, right? And the experience I described at Michigan State, our, our mascot is the Spartan. Um, and so there's this moment in a student's career where they, they have to decide, am I going to be a nurse or am I going to be a Spartan? Because I'm being told I'm not going to get to be a Spartan nurse, right? So what does it mean for that student when we think about, um, have we done a good job in kind of parallel advising? through that first year, let's say this decision happens at the end of the year, have done a good job of parallel advising to help that student understand what their options are if they don't become a nurse. And this isn't counseling them out. This is being realistic. So like, well, what was it about being a nurse that was exciting? Was it the science part? Was it the helping part? Was it, you know, which piece do you like, right? Maybe you go into a social work program or you go into a nutrition program or um, med lab sciences or kinesiology, right? So thinking about how do we help you get to that place? And if you're going to leave my university to go do that somewhere else, how do I make sure that that is a smooth experience for you and that you leave feeling good about what you've accomplished and not um, like you have a hole in your heart and don't get to do what you want to do? So that's a piece of it. And then thinking about if we know where they go, um, how do we use our data? Um, how, we, we have all these data, students who go and come back. Like if I know that a lot of our students who leave my campus um, go to take a certain set of courses in other places, how am I... Um, what kind of good uh, 
transfer agreements, right? Articulation agreements have I established? Um, how do I make this easy for students? If I, if I know a student's gonna be taking time at one of our area community colleges, like I can figure out which one of those math classes is gonna count for what class back here. Like let's help the students do that. We started a program at Michigan State um, called Envision Green with one of our community colleges where you know it's a much closer um, articulation program so that students begin thinking of themselves as Spartans on their way in. We've done better advising. So thinking about helping students in and out much more flexibly, I think is a huge piece of what we could be doing. But that's on the advising side. I wanna think on like a quote unquote traditional student life side, housing, activities, leadership development. It shouldn't just be that you get to be a student leader because you started here as a first year student and stayed for three or four years, right? Like how do I create on-ramps and off-ramps in that experience as well? How do I help students translate that to leadership and engagement in other places? And then how do I help a student transfers into their junior year connect with student government or other experiences? I think that's a place we, and coming out of student activities professionally, I'm not sure we were ever very good at that. It was much easier to think about like uh, leadership development from like, we'll cultivate you from your first year up until you become president and then sort of move you on, right? Um, I'd like us to think more creatively about um, pathways, on-ramps and on-ramps, not a pipeline that you fall in, out of and can't get back into, right? So some of those ideas I think in student affairs we could be doing better at. So Chris, one of the things I really liked about your response there was when we think about the, the kind of different enrollment patterns of students, were in, especially in the literature, when we're thinking about it from a research standpoint, we're often thinking about the, the effects of those enrollment patterns, that swirling, that double dipping on retention to graduation, mm. which is, is extremely important. But you took it a step further. And this was one of the things I, I think we need to do as a profession. We need to do in higher ed more broadly. Um, what are the effects of that enrollment on student learning and student development? And we, yes, we can keep them here. Um, we know we know the effects. It's complicated, but we know the effects of those kinds of enrollment patterns on whether or not they persist to graduation. But I don't know that we have a very good understanding of um, how that coming in and out, that moving in and out of our of our various systems and our various institutions affects their learning outcomes, affects their developmental outcomes, and affects the the kind of joy and sense of belonging yeah. um, that we want students to have in higher ed. Right, broader than than. Um, the individual functional areas of student affairs, but how students learn change. That's what we say that we are experts on, how they learn, develop, grow, and all of these things. Yes, and I think we need to think about it there, but that doesn't excuse us from also thinking about it in those individual functional areas. It's as if we believe our students are first-year students or seniors, right? And we forget that there's all this in between and they come at us in very different ways. So it would seem to me that a really interesting program for um, each functional area would be to just stop and say, how do we create opportunities for these 90% of the students that are doing it differently? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then how do we then ensure in each of those functional areas, we are attending to how they learn, and how to be, um, how to facilitate that learning and how to facilitate that development. And that's just um, fascinating. Now, I would think that, um, that, that that's our new direction, so to speak, that um, we also in student affairs, though we are uh, expert, we say, at who the student is, I will tell um, the administration in a minute, in a, in a, in a second, you want to talk to student affairs folks about if you want to know who your students are. 
I think we've got to learn them in deeper and um, um, more complex ways and not just in terms of only their demographics or only their characteristics, but all of these other areas that we're talking about here. These students are coming to us differently and they're looking to us for to meet their needs. And I think we can do that. I think we just have to start thinking differently. And so this might be the kickoff for that. Let me switch back to your book for a second because I am just thrilled with this book. I, you know, I, I don't even teach our um, American college student class at the uh, master's level anymore. I, I think I'm gonna start teaching one at the doctoral level, the advanced one. Um, but I was thrilled about this book because I'd always wanted some place where I could have a lot of this stuff um, to learn. And you told us a bit about your origin story. So the next question I sort of have for you is, tell me about this new edition. Once you made the decision, yeah, we're going to do it again. What were you looking to do differently? What were you hoping, uh, knew that you just had to add and knew that you had to discuss so I'm, I'm going to defer to Chris on this one because I was lucky enough. I just needed to update some numbers and, and do some editing to make it more up to date. Chris had the heavy lift here. So when we talked to people who've been using the book, um, they, the original edition had uh, the two, I think, middle chapters were sort of like a short, super concentrated course on student development theory. It was like we took the hit parade of student development theories and just smashed them in tight in there, not super deep, but enough to feel as people who thought about student development, okay about it. Um, and when we talked to how people use the book, they're like, well, a little, but really I also need um, either the, uh, you know, college student development theory book, um, the Lori Patton Davis et al book, or potentially um, the new critical student development theories, the um, Susan Jones, Lisa Avis, D.L. Stewart version, you know, I'm, I'm supplementing it with something big and important anyway. So yeah, not really using those chapters. We're like, okay. Um, so we decided we didn't really, we weren't doing as good a job there as we could be doing because we the depth level. But what was totally missing was like mm, anything about student learning. And when I thought about the way we teach a college student's course in, in my doc program, it's a, it's a higher ed doc program, not a student affairs higher ed program. We have people in there who are like, hmm, students, students. Yep, I guess we've got them. Okay, students. Um, you know, like they are a research administrator or uh, something else, but they don't, they don't approach higher ed through working with students, which is great. I was like, okay, what do I really want them to think about? I really want them thinking about student learning and there's no other place in many curriculums where learning is a piece of it. So we swapped out some straight up student development theory and put in lots of contemporary interesting information about how students are believed to learn. Mm -hmm. So that as we think about creating learning environments, whether those are digital environments, uh, place-based environments, um, curricular contexts, um, some of the sort of neuroscience of learning, um, we put that in there and that's new and I haven't heard as much talk about that in the field, but of course that's the important stuff. That's why they're here in many respects. So that I think was a big, um, a pretty exciting piece. I got to learn a whole bunch of stuff I had not read deeply in before. Um, and especially I think the parts around um, the digital spaces, and this isn't just because we were finishing this during the pandemic, mm -hmm. but um, I, I feel like the field has gotten ourselves through that, um, some of us will remember the panic in about 2008, 2010 of, oh my gosh, we, uh, student affairs has to monitor social media and police student conduct was one panic. 
And another digital panic was, um, oh my gosh, people aren't going to develop real identities because they're only going to have their digital identities as though that was not their identity. There was that panic. Um, there have been several tech panics. Um, I feel like we're through most of that, um, whether we've resigned ourselves to it or something or just gotten more comfortable. Um, but taking seriously the ways that uh, digital life is a learning space for people. So that is kind of fun, I think, in the book. We've got some newer populations that in the first edition were like, we should be paying attention because I think maybe this is going to become an important thing. Um, so, so we've got some of that in the book um, and some new ways of sort of thinking about and measuring learning outcomes, some you know big data. Um, Bob, maybe you can talk some about the real strong uh, turn we took into explicitly naming student success kind of concepts. And and uh, kind of throughout the entire book is this enrollment management concept as well. Um, so yeah, Chris, actually, I was thinking about um, we when we talk about our history together. I think the first thing we did together was the uh, why quibble over learning and development. And and one of the reasons, which is a paper we never published, and we should probably get around to doing that sometime. Um, but it was so much fun to write and think about the way student affairs folks. Um, us have thought about learning and have thought about development and, and where they overlap and where they come into conflict, those definitions. And then our friends and Chris and I both are in, have both been in institutions where higher ed and student affairs are kind of different departments in different programs for sure. I'm in a higher ed program now that has a good student affairs history. Penn State was very different. And so people talked about learning and they talked about development and never the two shall meet. And so as we start talking about uh, learning in that section of the new section of the book from a student affairs lens, but also pulling in what we know from our, our learning-centered colleagues, our Lisa Latukas, our Anna Newmans, um, folks that we value and, and learn from um, every time we interact with them, that's, that was fun. And, and those chapter, that chapter is, is one of my favorites uh, in the book. And it also frames the way we think about student success broadly, right? We... Um, I'll often share when I talk to talk to people. Uh, I worked with a, a colleague who said, um, you know, retention is a necessary but insufficient condition for learning to occur, right? So when we think about student success as just, you know, getting to graduation, we don't know whether that is a, that is a form of success, but it's fairly, uh, you know, unidimensional, single dimension uh, understanding of what success is. And we think more broadly about learning and, and outcomes related to uh, development and, and uh kind of framing success bigger, right? which I think is what we were trying to do as we move throughout the book and particularly into the, the outcome section of the book when we're really thinking about what are the outcomes of, of a higher education in the United States. You know, I think that's such an important um, point that you both brought up, this whole focus on student learning and how we have and how students learn and the fact that we need to know more about that. It doesn't at all say that development is important. Development is very important. Um, but we are willing to almost go out on the limb about student development being important, but we forget about our role in student learning. And I keep thinking, and I keep wanting to say to my students and do say to my students that if you're only focused if you don't recognize yourself in the learning um, industry, <laughs> then there's a problem with your training, you know, and we have failed you because this is all about how students learn and develop. And so I'm so glad that that's an important component of your, um, 
of your book and that you're reminding us and reminding our students that this is really important and reminding us that those of us who do this work, either in the classroom or in, um, in practitioner roles. So I want to ask you about this other thing that, that I believe, and I think you know that I believe, is that, that our work, no matter what we're doing in student affairs and higher education, that we really need to center justice and equity in those conversations all the time. They need to be a part of it. And so given all of these discussions, especially the most recent discussions through the pandemic, through the summer, you know, all these campuses now are saying that they want to be anti-racist. And they're saying it really loudly. They're not doing a thing differently in so many places than they were when they were saying they wanted a diverse campus. But they recognize that something is different and you do something. And so I, I applaud that. What I'm wondering is how, um, given the, these current conversations about being a different kind of campus um, and infusing equity, diversity, justice, and inclusion into our curriculum, I'm wondering if you might have some thoughts on that for these kinds of courses, the, the courses that would use your books and just our field in general. I'll start. I, I teach this class. I also teach our foundations class, which is history and sociology kinds of stuff. And I feel like um, in order to really transform our curriculum in a lot of ways, and I learned a lot of this from reading what my friends are writing online. I'll see a great tweet about a new syllabus or something and I'll go, you know, find that. And um, there's, um, you know, smart, smart, smart people yeah. all over the place doing great work and I'm learning so much from them. So um, not fully original ideas, I will not claim them. But I do feel like not starting the places we usually start. So decentering the quote, traditional college students, like we don't describe Joe College and then talk about, well, by the way, that's not true anymore. Or we don't say, um, well, let's start in 1636 at the founding of that college in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And oh, look where we've come since then, right? Like, let's not start at that place. I think about our colleague in higher ed, a historian Philo Hutchison, who uh, his book is called A People's History of American Higher Ed, something to that effect. Um, and he um, uses the term colonizing colleges instead of colonial colleges. And what a mind shift that was, right? Like instead of those seven little colleges, which were the first ones for the first 200 years of higher ed on this continent, um, what if we don't think about them as the foundation for everything that came after? What if we think about them as colonizers? What if we started studying um, both Iowa State and Michigan State are land-grant universities? What if we start, instead of studying them at you know, the Moral Act and everything Justin Moral did for us, what if we start with the land? that was taken, right? And if we go to the Land Grab U uh, website, uh, landgrabu.org, I believe is the, is the website, um, go there and, and look where the land, the exact lands match to your institution, right? So there's really exciting ways of decentering the norm, the typical, um, you know, let's not start with the quote canon and then teach the quote alternatives to it. Let's start from the, from the non-center and work our way I feel like that is a way to do it. So by starting with college students in the United States, we we don't start with the typical and then said all the ways that are different, right? We present all the kinds of ways around it. So I think that's a, a piece of this puzzle. I love that answer and maybe respond in a, in a slightly different way to the to the question and kind of go off what we were just talking about in terms of learning as, as an outcome, learning and development as outcomes of college. I think, and we know both of those learning and development occur in relationship and it include, they occur when people are in, engaged with other people uh, in other artifacts, books, papers, research. We can't do that if we're excluding people. And so we need to think about learning and development as, a, as the, the outcome of bringing people in. Um, 
I was um, just one last thought on that, just as you were talking about, I started thinking like, what if instead of the book on college students in the United States, what if we, we started with who are not yet college students in the United States, oh. right? And then ask, why is that? Like, what, what have we constructed that keeps that out? Or like, if we started from indigenous epistemologies, take them seriously, what if we framed policy and curriculum through them instead of those things? So like, who are not? And then why is why have we created a system that makes that so? Yeah. Ah, gotta redo my syllabus now. See? <laughs> now, if we tell a joke, now we've got the um, the origins of the next book. You know, we could keep going. And, and I easily could. I love sitting down with you all and talking. We add a few more friends and a, um, a cup of coffee between us. We can have a really, you know, like great thing and can go on forever. But it is you know, all good things come to an end, unfortunately, at least a, a temporary end. So I just wanted to, to give you an opportunity to, if you had any final thoughts, something that you'd like folks to walk out of here and remember, and it could be related to what we were just talking about or related to something we talked about at the very beginning or something we never got to. How about if we start with you on this, Bob? So I think I would, I would leave my final thought with that, with what I just said, is that all this good stuff that we want to do, the, the purpose we're here happens in relationship. And if we can't, if we aren't in community, if we aren't in relationship, we're not going to be able to see, succeed at what we're, what we're here to do. And most of us enter this profession because we want to be positive influence on other people's lives and, and the community within which we live. Um, and so as I think about, again, decentering the, that which has been centered in the past, um, it's, it's gotta be about bringing, uh, bringing folks in and building community and relationship. Absolutely. Thank you. Chris, anything you'd add? Yeah, so I've um, said this elsewhere, but I'll, I'll say it here. Um, you know, people who are starting their careers in higher ed now will probably work until about the year 2060. Um, and if we still have anything that looks like higher ed now in the year 2060, the people who start their higher ed careers then in 2060 will probably work until the year 2110 something like that. So thinking about um, the kinds of things we think about as higher education people, scholars, faculty, practitioners, policymakers, what we do today plants the seeds for people who will be living and working and contributing in the year 2110. And so that's a long time. I don't think our book is designed to get people to that point, but I hope that the way that we think and talk about college students, learners, um, there are some enduring ideas. What's important? What's important to know? Who is it important to be? What kinds of relationships do we wanna have? Can those be the kinds of guiding questions as educators that help us create these environments that will see people forward in their own careers to the year 2110? So I think that's kind of what we're trying to get at. Wow. I have to tell you right now, I have a headache and I used to get a headache because what happens is my brain gets full and it was always the mark of, for me, of a good class. If I walked out of a class with a headache, it meant I had to think really hard. So I've just developed a headache and I thank you both. I am so grateful for our time together today. Chris and Bob, thank you so much. Um, to the audience, you can receive reminders about this and other episodes by subscribing to the Student Affairs Now newsletter or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. Please subscribe to the podcast, invite others to subscribe to the podcast, share on social, or leave a five-star review. It really helps conversations like this reach more folks and build a learning community.
Again, I'm Rochelle Pope. Thanks again to the amazing Chris Wren and Bob Reason today. And thank you to everyone who is watching and listening. Thanks.